Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm your host, Riley Risto, here with... Christopher Hurtado. And we're joined by our guest, Lindsay O'Lynn. Lindsay is a mother of two boys, a homeschooler, and co-founder of Latter-day Peace Studies. And we thought it was appropriate to bring her on because today we're going to be discussing the seventh beatitude, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Recently, Lindsay wrote an article in Latter-day Peace Studies that was all about her transition away from the political realm and into a more personal realm of seeking peace in her relationships with others and also just within herself. And so we thought that this would be a good opportunity for us to discuss this this topic, this beatitude, with someone who's been through the transition into a more peaceful way of living. And so, Lindsay, just to start the conversation, give us just a real quick overview of, of where you were and how you came to be at least an amateur peace activist. Yes, that that's pretty accurate. We'll go with amateur. I'm trying, but um, basically I used to be pretty obsessed with politics. It was, it was my life. Um, around 2008, I uh, got really involved in politics with the presidential election and slowly started listening to more and more talk radio. I had I literally had um, Fox News, the image, burnt into my plasma TV. So I, I was really obsessed with politics. And it, it was more just, I had um, really young kids at the time. And it was more just at home. But then around 2014, I started to get more involved outside of myself and in the community. I got involved with political a political party and... Um, joined some groups and just sort of got more and more involved with those and helped with political campaigns. And it just kind of became my world, my life. I, I would listen for hours a day to the radio and any anything that was happening in the nation or the world would kind of take over my entire life. Um, I became stressed all the time. I would become fearful and it it definitely stole a lot of my peace and i got more and more involved and got elected to some positions within some groups and finally it came down to a point where one of my good friends was actually uh, accused of doing something inappropriately while being um, an elected official and that really um, just kind of broke my understanding of reality and it just kind of shattered what I saw and what I thought I knew and um, I started to realize that things weren't as good as I thought they were and that I had become more and more hateful towards people that didn't think like me. I became very judge, uh, judgmental towards people and I realized that it was slowly killing me and killing my soul and I realized that I needed to get out of it completely. And that was probably one of the hardest things that I've ever done to just kind of step out fully. I, I kept being tempted to just step out, you know, one foot. Oh, I'll, I'll get out of this group, but I'll stay in this one because this one's still really good. And um, But eventually I finally got out completely and allowed some of those identities to die. And, and it was during that time that I, I just really struggled. I had terrible anxiety and I didn't really know what I was, who I was, um, where I was, what I believed or anything. And it was at that time that I started to pay attention to Christ a little bit more. Um, 
I, I didn't really have room for him before that and started to read his words and started to kind of find myself again. You're speaking our language. Um, <laughs> you really sound like you went through this process that Jesus sort of outlines for people in the Beatitudes. When you, when you talked about dropping all of these identities uh, at first tentatively and then kind of like, you know, one at a time and then all at a time, it, it, that, that is the exact language really that is highlighted in the first Beatitude with becoming empty. Tell us what that process was like for you. How, I mean, how did it affect you, but also how did it affect the people around you? Um, so, yeah, it, it was it really like the word for it was excruciating. It, it caused me constant anxiety to the point where I was having panic attacks every day. It was a really scary thing to give up what I thought. Well, not only what I thought I knew about myself, but what I thought I knew about the world. And um, I also felt like I was really doing good. And I didn't quite understand why those identities needed to die. Um, and so I, yeah, I slowly let those things go. I actually, I kept, I would go to all of my friends, you know, my close friends or uh, my husband and I would be like, well, what do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? And I was trying to find anybody that would tell me to stay with what I was doing because I did not want to let it go. Um, but deep down, I did know. And I eventually had to get, I got a pretty powerful blessing from my bishop. And it made it pretty clear, well, clear as day, actually, that it was what I needed to do. And even after that blessing, I still was like, oh, there's got to be some way that I can hold on to a little bit of this. I've worked so hard. and um, But it ended up to the point where I was getting blessings daily from my husband uh, to try to control the anxiety and the panic attacks. I, 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 w I really thought that I was doing something wrong because I thought that my mission was to be part of the political realm and to do good and to make changes and I really just was confused and I didn't understand why God was asking me to do what he was asking me to do and I was pretty angry about it um, and so that went on for probably three or four months with the panic attacks pretty much daily so that was quite the process but as time went on I started to see some of the things that I was a part of um, start to crumble and I saw some of the blessings in me stepping out when I did. Yeah, but it, it really was just like I knew nothing about myself at that point. I didn't know who I was or where I was going or what I was supposed to be doing. Now that's what I call emptying, that you really are speaking our language, and this really is the language of the Beatitudes. In addition to not knowing who you were, this sense of divesting yourself of these false identities, there are a couple other things you said that, that stood out to me. You said you didn't know where you were, and then you said you started paying attention. And I thought, man, that's just, that's the essence of contemplation, is that first question we, we always talk about, right, Riley? Where am I? And then paying attention. That's what contemplation's all about. Yeah, and that... That definitely, I mean, I really didn't know up from down. I was, I was so lost. And, and with the political identities, suddenly all of my identities were called into question. And, um, you know, I, like you said, I homeschool. I was like, well, should I continue to be doing that? What is, um, my, my belief in the church and God and, in, in every aspect of my life, every single one of them sort of unraveled at once. And it was, it was excruciating. So you've described a lot of the, the painful aspects of it, the mourning, so to speak, and, and the humility and maybe even humiliation that came from going through this process. But with each one of these Beatitudes, there's always a promise on the back end. How did you experience those promises? When did that start to bear fruit for you? Um... I mean, it, in reality, there, had there not been some of those uh, 
blessings throughout the time. I, I don't know how I would have made it through it. So they came in little, little waves here and there throughout the time, little tender mercies, uh, like, like the blessing from my bishop and like the, the blessings from my husband. I would, I would get beautiful little messages of hope. Um, I, I definitely found comfort. I, I began to get one thing that was an, an amazing thing for me. I, I love music. I've always been involved in music and I started to get little messages and songs pretty much. I mean, probably once a week I would get a, a message in a song and they, these would just be regular songs that I'd heard over and over and over, but just little messages of, you know, you, you, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're on the right path. I'm with you. Um, and, and they would stick out pretty much just clear as day. And those, those continued messages became my comfort. And, you know, so yes, I was mourning, but I definitely was being comforted at the same time. And as I was totally lost in my identity, I was being told who I was at the same time with these messages. And most of the messages that I would receive not only told me that I was on the right path, but they also reinforced the idea that I was loved and that I was being held. And that definitely made all of the difference. And so, yeah, through this process, this horrible, excruciating, emptying, just lost process, I, I was at the same time finding myself and finding God. That's beautiful. Well, we wanted to highlight some of that stuff, not to put you through the, you know, the, the grinder, so to speak, but just to highlight one of the many ways in which someone can come to experience peace is by letting go of these identities. And for you, that identity was really wrapped up in the political sphere. For other people, people it might be something completely different. Their identity might be wrapped up in, in, in group identity, for instance, or, or religious identity. And sometimes those things can distract us from the inner peace of connecting directly or having communion with God. So we just wanted to highlight that for a second and then kind of transition, hopefully smoothly, into this discussion about blessed are the peacemakers. Now, in our last episode, Chris, we kind of finished by talking about how the pure in heart is both an individual uh, designation. Um, Zion is can be the pure in heart within the individual. But by extension, it can it can move to the community as well. And as we as we talked about that, we we sort of related it to the political realm a little bit and said, you know, we politics kind of steps in where the great commandments fail. And so if if we're really working on ourselves, we have that purity of intention, that purity of heart then that should extend into our public actions and build community naturally. And it's where that breaks down or fails that we no longer have the, you know, the right relationship with our neighbors and it has to be forced upon us by, by the state. And, and so, you know, we see in Lindsay's description here, a sort of uh, model of that, don't we? I think so. And, you know, before we started recording, we were talking with Lindsay and Lindsay, you had something to say about what right relationship means to you, and that's something we can maybe go into and, and talk about a little bit. Yeah, um, you know, I was just thinking about how being a peacemaker is literally, peacemakers are people who create right relationships in, in every aspect in their life. Um, there's a quote by William Barclay that says, that essentially they are they are people who produce right relationships in every sphere of their life and so that begins with like for me i think that part of what i did was i tried to create this right relationship with the world around me and uh, the larger sphere in the world instead of I, I think i didn't really want to look internally first and i thought i had the right relationship with God and with Christ. Uh, I, I, I was pretty confident that I, I had that figured out, you know. And so I stepped out into this world trying to create right relationship there without having the right relationship internally first. And, and 
So there's the right relationship that we create with within ourselves and our conscience and knowing who we are and our identity, our divine nature. But also there's that relationship with with God that sort of comes simultaneously. Those two things have to come together. And, you know, it is like the two great commandments. We need to love God and then we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we can't love our neighbors if we don't love God and we don't love ourselves. And I think my big mistake for me personally, and you know, other people might have different experiences with this, but I, I was looking outward instead of looking inward. And, um, I, I got told with, with, you know, no question that I needed to go renegotiate those relationships first before I could step out into the world and, and create the peace that I was looking for. You know, I'm reminded by what you're saying of a quote from Confucius. I'd like to share that quote. Confucius says, To put the world in order, we must first put the nation in order. To put the nation in order, we must first put the family in order. To put the family in order, we must first cultivate our personal life. We must first set our hearts right. It's a concept that you know, Jordan Peterson, whom we reference every once in a while, talks about all the time. There's a lot of idealists that want to go out and change the world, and and yet they can't make their bed or or clean their room before they leave the home in the morning, or they can't keep a job or, you know, keep their grades consistent at school. It's the little acts of individual uh, righteousness or right relationship that really determine whether we can set the same right relationship with our neighbors and, you know, by extension, the, the whole community. I think you bring up an important point there, Riley, because when you say right relationship is what righteousness means, this is, in fact, you know, we get the word righteousness from a root that has to do with, well, it's what's right. And what's right is to be in, the, in proper order, right? Things to be in their proper place, as we talked about justice. Justice is a big part of this conversation having those right relationships means having justice. And I think about the project of of the Roman Empire of bringing peace, so-called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace through victory, as opposed to the the Jewish peasant uh, from, uh, from Nazareth who brings this project of peace through justice. And by that, what is meant is by being, by having right relationships. Right, the right relationship w- with oneself and with God, and with one's family members, and with one's expanding outward in these hierarchical circles that the the Stoics, you know, that Hierocles spoke of, and which is saying the same thing Confucius was saying. Right, this idea that that there are these expanding spheres of influence, and so if we're focused on the political way out there at the level of the state capital or Washington or the United Nations maybe we're we're putting the cart before the horse. Well, and I really think the whole concept of atonement can be summed up in, in the word itself, and maybe this gets overused and becomes a little bit cliche, but the at-one-ing process is a process of reconciliation of man with himself, of man with God, of man with man, and that's really what the atonement is about, is, is the justice and reconciliation that comes from building a right relationship. And the best place to start is within. I like that. And, and that reminds me, you know, just of the Beatitudes in general. In, in order to create that right relationship with God and with ourselves, we have to be poor in spirit first. We have to be meek. We have to be willing to look at those dark places that we don't want to look at and be willing to actually do the work to sort of integrate those things with us and and work on the things that we really need to work on before we can progress outward and upward along that on along the steps of the beatitudes another thing that comes to mind is how similar even the ideas of like um Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps, those, those steps are the same thing. You have to recognize, it's this pattern of recognizing the internal things 
before we can move outward. And, and those internal things both include ourselves and God. Yeah, the 12-step the program is based on the Beatitudes, as I recall. I seem to remember that's true. Can, can you confirm that, Riley? Do you know? I, I'm not sure. Uh, I've, I've read through the 12 steps, but I, I've never really thought through it enough to try to relate it to the Beatitudes. That'd be an interesting exercise, I think. That might be an interesting episode, too. Yeah. I was, um, I've been reading a book. I, I'm really into the 12 steps. I, I, I find a lot of, a lot of good there. And, um, and, and it puts, it puts the Beatitudes in sort of a practical way. Uh, for just the average person, but I w- I've been reading a book by Thomas Keating. Well, it's actually an interview with him, and they've just kind of transcribed it. But according to the book, they basically said that they're not sure whether Bill Wilson w- actually knew what he was writing when he wrote it, but that it they agree that it it aligns perfectly with the Beatitudes. You know, I think that's it was from via maybe not from Keating, but via one of his associates um, that I got the idea because I I remember now I read Breathing Underwater Spirituality in the Twelve Steps by Richard Rohr, and so even if you know if the the creator didn't intend that, Richard Rohr was able to map the twelve steps to the to the Beatitudes. That would be an interesting episode. Yeah, that Breathing Underwater is a great book. I like that one. Uh, Lindsay, as you started talking about how the the Beatitudes lead us into this idea of wanting to establish right relationships, I was I was drawn to the fourth Beatitude that is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I think that's fourth, fourth or fifth. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If you if you took out righteousness and replaced it with right relationships, which is pretty much the same meaning, that would have a unique feel to it, especially because the preceding steps indicate that you first have to sort of cleanse yourself of the, the poisonous identities that are filling your vessel. And once that vessel is empty, then all of a sudden you're hungry and you're thirsty again. Absolutely. And, you know, and the ego has less control over you and your actions and the way that you, you work with other people. You, you're working more out of that true self-identity rather than the false self. Can you define true and false self for us, Lindsay, for our listeners? I'll do my best. I can do my, I'm, I'm not the expert, but my understanding is that true self is basically our divine nature. It's um, who God created us to be. It is being at one with God. Um, it, it's who we were before we put on all of the false identities or um, became part of all these different groups or whatever, whatever we choose to see ourselves as, when we're not seeing us the way that God sees us, we aren't seeing our true self. Um, so the false self would be those, those false identities. Like, like with me, uh, you know, I, I was part of politics and I was, you know, I, I had all of these labels that I was, um, even things just anything that isn't in total alignment with being at one with God and what he designed you to be. That's my understanding. Yeah, you know, the only thing I'd add to that, Lindsay, is just this idea that that there there can be, there's, there's a usefulness to some of the false identities. We actually give them to our children, right? Your parents give you false identities. You're an American, you're a Latter-day Saint, you're all these identities that really aren't about your right relationship with God necessarily, not even the, the Latter-day Saint one, really. The point of religion is to order your soul and to order a community. So it's really about that order, which is a right relationship with yourself, with, with God, with your community. And so, but they can be so useful that when we're, when we're children. The, the question is, do they really serve us later on? And, and can we come to understand them as false identities in some sense, no matter how useful they are, to realize that their usefulness only goes so far, and then they're not useful anymore? Yeah, they, they can definitely help to shape us and maybe, maybe give us some order to the universe that's so chaotic. Um, 
But yeah, definitely, like if we hold, these identities can become extremely harmful to us when we hold on to them past the point of their usefulness. And, and, and most of these identities, you know, we're not taking them with us when we go. They, they stay here. Yeah, to, uh, you know, to point out what the church actually does is teach us the idea that, that we're children of God. That's the, that's the true identity, I think, is, is the, the relationship between us and between God. And anything, you know, beyond that can be helpful in terms of whatever your calling is, whatever your relationship with other members of your community, you know, within the church. And yet those only go so far in their usefulness. Ultimately, it's about our relationship with ultimate reality, our relationship with the divine. And I think that, you know, I've been a young women's leader for a few years, and I think that it's become so apparent to me how important that identity is and how important it is that we understand that first before we place all of these other all of these other things telling us what we should and shouldn't do we need to have that understanding so i mean there's no there's no mistake that i am a child of god is that we sing that so often and that that is really, you know, what is sort of pushed on our children because we hope that they internalize that. And when you don't have that true, when you haven't internalized that understanding that that's who you actually are at the very core and that God loves you and is holding you and maintaining you, um, no matter what, a lot of, a lot of the teachings that get added on afterward can really become skewed and unhelpful if you don't have that established foundation and identity. Can we relate that maybe to, this is, I'm thinking of a business book. I think it's a business book. Start with why. It's this idea of starting with why. The, the other things, right. The other things that we might add on are, are really only truly helpful and fully helpful if we start with the right why. And that's that relationship with God, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like that you bring that up because so often the pattern of the world, and and we're included in that, is to not take the first things first, but, you know, we layer the identity starting sometimes with the least important until until we get to the end, which we think is we've progressed. Well, actually, we've regressed because we've started with the least important. And it's interesting that I always like to try to connect the beatitude state of being, in this case, peacemaker, with the blessing that attends it, which in this case is being called children of God. Why is that connection so important? And I think you've highlighted that, that our first and most important identity should be child of God. And when we recognize it as such, and we act in that mode of being, of understanding, that puts us at peace, at least individually within, if not completely with our brothers and sisters externally as well. So I'm reminded of a quote from Ezra Taft Benson in connection with this conversation, because he says, the Lord works from the inside out. The world works from the outside in. The world would take people out of the slums. Christ takes the slums out of people, and then they take themselves out of the slums. The world would mold men by changing their environment. Christ changes men who then change their environment. The world would shape human behavior, but Christ can change human nature. And I think that's what you're talking about, Riley. Yeah, by allowing Christ into your life, the recognition that you're a child of God just like he is, as brothers and sisters in Christ, puts priorities in the right order, puts identities in the right order, so that we can then act upon our true nature, our true self, within the world in a peaceful way. Yeah, not only that, but this idea of working from from putting on these identities, working our way into the center where you're a child of God, instead of starting from there and, and then adding the others on top of that, right? That You were talking about how we do it backwards. It seems like we're working from the outside in. That's the world, the way of the world rather than inside out. And I think that one of the 
I mean, it's so essential that the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit because it's in those moments that we see that we are blessed and God loves us when we are at our worst. Um, and, and we realize that he has this love for us um, in this in the way that we are. And then we're able to then take that and say, wow, if if he feels this way about me and how I am in this awful moment and this awful state that I'm in now, I'm now able to extend that same opportunity and that same grace to those around me. I can say, oh, he must not just be me that he loves, but he loves everybody this way. And and that helps us to be able to recognize that they are children of God as well. So one of my frustrations, I guess maybe not even lately, but just generally speaking, with the way we interact with each other within the church is we're still too tribal. Um, I, the very first day we, that I came back in my home ward from, uh, from this, you know, COVID uh, home study stuff into having classes actually at the church again, uh, we spoke about um, the Divinely Inspired Constitution talk that uh, Dallin H. Oaks gave in conference last April. And, you know, I'm sure that talk has its place. Um, for me personally, it, it, it didn't have the connection with that most important identity as children of God. It spoke to Americans. It didn't speak to the whole world. But, you know, again, it has its place. And I think even Dallin H. Oaks said, you know, this this is going to apply to basically Americans at the beginning of the talk. But But nevertheless, I think we spend so much time on on these identities that aren't children of God, that we're always trying to parse who we are and how we interact and relate with people. When we go back to that divine center, to that true self, the truest nature that all human beings share, we no longer have to try to figure out how to interact with each other in terms of, you know, who, who are we? Oh, well, I'm an American. Oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a German. Oh, I'm a Ghanaian, whatever. Those identities have been shed, and now we're, we're on the same level. We're children of God. We're brothers and sisters. And it's so much easier to find peace and establish right relationships when we've done that, that first and most important work. That's when we get to the place that Paul speaks of in Galatians 3.8. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And the same thing in the Book of Mormon when it talks about all manner of ites and how, how that all fell away and they became one and they were united. It's very much a Zion-type uh, metaphor, right? So something that comes to mind is, as we talk about tribalism, is just, just the idea that it's not only like nations or types of people, but it's also religions that we've kind of separated ourselves from and we we other other people but through my experience when I really just didn't know who I was or what I was doing I I felt like I received the go-ahead to just start searching and and learning about all the good that the world had to offer I'd always been really interested in different religions and it was something that always felt like it was a taboo something that I should should not be interested in and that I shouldn't learn about and I sort of was given this go ahead to just just go go look for truth find the things that are true and through that experience I I started reading different religious theologians and philosophers and all of these different ideas and I I began to see and hear different languages that also spoke to the things that I already knew. And I, I began to see how similar these, these other ideas were to my own and began to learn things that for some reason I wasn't able to learn in our own church. Something about the language just didn't seem to, to click with me, but I was able to find these truths and these beautiful things from other religions and other tribes, so to say, 
And I'm, I'm just grateful when those barriers begin to come down and we can start to see the goodness in other people. And I, I was so thankful that I was able to learn from all of these wonderful people that helped to strengthen my own faith in Christ and my own connection in a way that I needed that I wasn't finding in my own group. And that's such an important part of peacemaking. And you know, it's a perennial topic here on the podcast, pun fully intended. It reminds me of a quote from Brigham Young who said, I want to say to my friends that we believe in all good. If you can find a truth in heaven, earth, or hell, it belongs to our doctrine. We believe it. It is ours. We claim it. And another iteration of the same sentiment, and one of my favorite iterations, comes from the Prophet Muhammad, who said, Wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever he finds it, he is most deserving of it. You know, I think where religion can be helpful, and maybe we pointed this out before, and it's an idea that's explored by Patrick Mason at length in his in his new book, Restoration, and that is that, you know, there are particular, I guess you could call them patches of the vineyard, where where each tribe can do good, where each one of them can really kind of do their particular work um, that's unique to them, and that they have their own unique gifts. And I think he points out four or five of the ways that Latter-day Saints can contribute in our own unique way to the the greater kingdom of God um, and, and do so kind of by our doctrine, by our theology. You know, one of the things that we talk about in our theology that we have that many other Christian faiths don't really talk about or acknowledge or, or maybe believe exist is this idea that um, there's a heavenly mother as well. That's a unique aspect to our theology that we can contribute to the, the greater cause of Christ. But there are also many religions where they, they believe in a, a mother figure God as well. And so we're not alone completely in that respect. You know, an, another idea might be this idea of salvation for the dead, you know, where we do temple ordinances on behalf of our deceased ancestors. That's something that's also somewhat unique to our 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 faith, our sect. And so those are all, I guess, positive ways that we can interact with our religion and use it as a tool to kind of raise the level of consciousness, awareness, or even brotherhood amongst all of the human family. But when those things get in the way of establishing good, right, peaceful relationships with our brothers and sisters of other quote-unquote tribes or faiths, then that's when we've kind of, we've lost the plot, right? Yeah, you know, you remind me of... uh... Because we're, what we're talking about here is this idea of holy envy, right? That you can, well, there are a couple of things, right? I think, Lindsay, you're referring to this idea of just hearing a truth that maybe is even something that you've been taught within your own tradition, but just hearing expressed in a different way such that it then clicks for you. Am I right? Is that one aspect of it? Yes, absolutely. Just a different, just a different way of speaking in a different language. Yeah. And on the other hand, there's this idea of there may be something that's actually completely foreign to our tradition, but that we can have this idea of holy envy. You know, they pray five times a day. Wow, what would it be like if I prayed five times a day? Maybe that would enrich my practice and bring me closer to God, right? Something like that. And I remember there was a Catholic theologian named Stephen Webb who found so much of interest in Mormon theology while maintaining his Catholic identity he wanted to explore that and enter into dialogue, and he wrote a book on Mormon theology. And so that's one example of, you know, that kind of working in the other, the other way around. And I remember, Riley, when it comes to working in, in different parts of the vineyard, when we were interviewing, when Shiloh and I and, and Jared were interviewing people for a, a documentary we're working on, uh, filming, producing, on hyperactive nonviolence, and we were asking the question, we're going around asking religious thinkers in different traditions and and others, the question is hyperactive nonviolence an answer, right? Is that is it realistic as an answer to the problem that the, the problems that the world faces? And I remember thinking as I as I talked with people like Preston Sprinkle, uh, the New York Times bestselling author of Fight, a Christian case for nonviolence, you know, there there were some interviews that I didn't get, but I talked with some Muslim leaders and thinkers and other, uh, some of these other people that we interviewed, I remember thinking to myself, 
and as I've gotten to know other people in, in different religious traditions, because I've explored, as Lindsay said, I've gone, I've taken my kids, we've gone to the mosque, we've gone to the, the other churches, we haven't gone to the synagogue, we have to make it to the synagogue. You're not always welcome at the synagogues, you have to find, and that can be true of a mosque too, you have to find the, the community that's welcoming. And I, I remember thinking to myself, as I met some of these people and got to know them, that they didn't, in my thinking, they didn't need to convert. That, that the world would be better off if they didn't convert, especially when it comes to peacemaking. When I think about a religious leader like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, who's the president, one of the co-founders of Zaytuna College, the first accredited Muslim institution of higher learning in America, and the work that he's doing, not only as an educator, but as a peacemaker, and the, the understanding that he's communicating about his own tradition to those who don't understand it in a peaceful way, how would it help the world? How would it help the Muslim community? How would it help the world if he would convert to Mormonism? I just don't see that, right? So if you think everybody's going to follow him, that's not realistic, right? And so if I'm God, and of course I'm not God, but if I, and then again, I am, right? Because as Jesus said, the Father and I are one, and he asks us, be ye therefore perfect, and I am made in the image of God. And let's remember that, right? That, that we may not be fully aware and know where, who we are and thus you know, behave as though we were. But metaphysically, the reality is we are in the image of God, at least. Then, you know, I'm okay with these different thinkers and these different actors thinking and acting and writing and speaking in their own sphere in those different parts of the vineyard. And I know that as Rumi says, that there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. And so I've, I trust and I have faith uh, that God's plan will work just the way it's working. It is working. It's a beautiful thing. So Lindsay, you spoke earlier about how sometimes when you divorce yourself from the tribal realm, whatever that may be, if it's politics or whatever, that there's this idea maybe outside yourself or maybe even within yourself that you're not effective. How have you been able to try to be effective as a peacemaker or, or just as an influence for good in general in the world outside of that, that very you know, active and open political realm? Can I just... I just want to ask the same question in other words, and maybe this is helpful. I hope it is. Are you doing anything, Lindsay? Because isn't this the question? Have you gotten this question? And you thought so too, right? You thought, I'm actually doing something. I'm doing good in the world. And now do people say, do people ask you this question? Well, what are you actually doing? So, yeah, it, it it's kind of, I, I had some reactions to my article and and just to me stepping away from politics um people have tried to pull me back in frequently and and they bring up a lot of times all of the the terrible things going on that that they need good people to help and do all of these causes and and I'm not saying that they're not good causes but for me being a peacemaker peacemaker, maker being an active term, um, is, is right for right now, at least is working on my inner relationship with myself, um, and with, with God and with Jesus Christ. I, there's a lot of work for me to do internally. That doesn't mean that I'm hiding away and I'm not doing any good in the world. I, I still serve in the church and I serve my neighbors and I take care of my children and, and I'm doing these small and simple things um, that I, I hope are helping. And But what I can see is that the more that I work on the things with it, within myself that need working on, I can see that I do a better job at the things that I do participate in. And I'm able to influence people in a way that I never have before. Not that my goal is to influence people, but help people. And if I, if I weren't taking the time to 
do these things internally, I think that my ability to help people and to love people the way that I really desire and want to help and love people um, would be much more limited. And so, yes, I, I honestly feel like I'm doing way more work now and it's more exhausting and, and it's more difficult work for me um, because it's the work that I was avoiding in the first place. And um, so, yeah, it being a peacemaker and stepping away from politics for me wasn't just me suddenly sticking my head in the sand and trying to ignore all the bad things that happen in the world. It's It was just recognizing that there was there were things that needed to be worked on and renegotiated and reestablished. Um, and who knows where the future will go. Um, I, I got the opportunity to start working on Latter-day Peace Studies during this time. And that was something that, like, when I started doing it, I was, <laughs> I was really taken aback because that is definitely not something that I would have ever seen myself being interested in or doing. Um, it, it just wasn't even on my radar. And it's amazing where life takes you when, when you sort of just step back and decide to like let the flow just take you where it takes you and allow God to actually direct you. I'm so glad you brought up the, the question of sticking your head in the sand, because if, if, if that didn't come up, I was going to ask a follow-up question to put it in those terms. And Lindsay, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, although it may not be your goal to influence people, it you have. You've influenced me, and you're behind this movement, this Latter-day Peace Studies movement that has brought about this podcast that I've been invited to, to co-host with Riley. And and I can tell you, it, it, we get so many comments. This, is, this has been a force for good in the world, in the hearts of so many individuals. Well, thank you. I'm, I, I am, you know, it's, it's an exciting thing when you do see that the things that you're doing are making some sort of a different, difference and having some sort of a ripple effect. Obviously, this wasn't my idea. I got asked to be part of it. And for that, I'm really thankful that I have been able to do it. it. One of the things that's so cool about it is to be able to see all of the people that have been involved and how much growth that we have ind as individuals have been able to do individually. I mean, even though most of you I've never, well, I think there's probably only one of the people that are involved that I've ever even met in person, and we've created this community together where we've been able to grow and draw closer to Christ and to be able to, you know, maybe share some messages that people need to hear. And it, it's been an adventure. I'm grateful, too. Uh, again, thank you, Riley, for having me as your co-host. And if I could just say one other thing on point, that is, you know, I, I noticed, too, that you said that what it means to be a peacemaker for you right now is to do this inner work on the one hand, and then, of course, now we're talking about the work that you're doing in the world. But you did these in that order, right? There's the inner work. So I do think that, that what it means to be a peacemaker can vary by person, by time, by place. But at the same time, I also think there's this pattern of working from, that we've mentioned already, right? From working, of working from the inside out. And I remember when I was making that documentary, working on that documentary with Shiloh and Jared, and people would ask me, what do you mean by hyperactive nonviolence? What does that even mean? And I would say, well, what it means to me right now, and so again, that's personally, and that's in, in this time and place, is to make this documentary, to go around and ask some of the leading thinkers in different religious traditions and others, other traditions, is, is, is hyperactive nonviolence or is non is a nonviolent approach a viable approach to the significant problems that we face? We even interviewed Jared interviewed a retired Navy SEALs captain who thought the military is a tool. You know, the, the root for the word army is ars, which is the Latin word for tool. But it's not a tool for everything. And he wanted to be a part of this. You know, he was interviewed for the documentary on 
nonviolence, a Navy SEAL captain. Well, and I think it's it's also, yeah, the the meaning and what your what you know maybe God or your intuition or whatever is asking you to do in the moment, like you said, can change. And and I, I do feel that when I was in politics, I I really felt strongly that that's what I was supposed to be doing right then, and 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 maybe that's what I was supposed to be doing, and that's what led me here. And um, but I I think that one thing that I I feel sure of is that we must continually be working on that inner relationship, just constantly working on that and improving that relationship with ourselves and with God. Even, you know, once we start venturing out into the the broader spheres, um, we have to keep in touch and keep centering back to that original relationship because it's easily lost. I want to hearken back to something you said earlier, talking about small and simple things. You know, that scripture is a good one to really contemplate for a moment. I'm just going to read part of it here. It says, Behold, I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And small means in many instances doth confound the wise. And I love that last line especially because so often we think, okay, I'm going to get involved in the big thing. And it's sort of a cheat code. We think, okay, if I can just get this amount of political power, then I'll have this much influence and I can make this many changes and and have a larger impact, per, perhaps a proportionally um, exponentially bigger impact than I could if I just did something myself in my own little family or my own little neighborhood. And it's actually the opposite, isn't it? I mean, it's so interesting to me when you look at the the major figures in history that had some of the greatest impacts, they, in many cases, I would say maybe even in most cases, did so not in the political realm, but through the power of showing the example of a right relationship with God. So you look at someone like Jesus Christ. He, he basically gathered disciples from the periphery. He didn't, he didn't go to the, the chief uh, priest and um, the high priest and say, hey, Caiaphas, you should join me because we're going to have a lot more influence if I can kind of dovetail off your power. It wasn't like that. He grabbed random fishermen and the lowest of the low. And then you think of Gandhi, for instance, and, you know, weaving baskets and, and the salt march and, and just basic actions that they may have had political ramifications, but he didn't enter into them as political move- movements. I mean, it was like, okay, we have the right to make salt. No one can restrict us from making salt. So let's just go make some salt. We're going we're gonna to walk all the way to the sea and we're going to make our own salt. Uh, or we're going to weave our own clothes or baskets or what have you. And it was just in the simple actions of, of nonviolent but active nonviolent uh, movements that great change came about. And he forced the British Empire basically out of India. And then you look at Martin Luther King and... What started as as words that resonated with people, and then it grew into a movement. And you can take example after example after example of small and simple things leading to great things coming to pass. And it just confounds people who think they've got it figured out because they think there's the right way to do it, you know, the way of coercion, when in reality the most effective way, and it's not easier, but it's certainly more effective, is persuasion. Riley, yeah, I what you described was exactly a trap that I feel like I fell into was was thinking that, you know, the more the more people I was connected to or the groups that I got involved with or the big projects and the campaigns and the more that I could be involved in and, you know, running for positions and moving up that hierarchy or that ladder and thinking that, you know, then I would be able to to make more of an impact. And, you know, what I, what I eventually finally saw was how it never end, ended. It, how, there was always more that you could do. There was always um, some higher position you could get to, some other person that you needed to connect with. or um, And it, it really became all-consuming and, um, and empty. It, it didn't 
fill you, you know, like, like the living water hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You know, we, I wasn't being filled by it. And it also wasn't really doing what I thought it was going to do by, by being part of that. Do you think there's a point at which the quest for influence becomes the end in itself? Right. Instead of instead of thinking, okay, I'm going to get this influence or this this outsized exponential power over a certain demographic, and then once I get there, man, can I really get some things done? But like you said, it's a never-ending hierarchy. You can keep climbing, and once you feel the pull of that power, like I, I was like you, I was heavily invested in politics. I did the whole you know delegate thing and multiple times and worked on campaigns for presidential candidates and met these candidates and and it was just so interesting the it was almost sort of like a high that you get from it and at a certain point it almost became like okay the power maybe feels better than the influence that that you would have had working on a specific project to make real change happen it was more like oh man there's a next level to this and I kind of want that. Absolutely. And there, you know, there was a point when I, when I realized that, yeah, it was, it did kind of sort of become about proving to myself like that I was valuable and that I was needed or that I was doing good and that I was worthy or worth, worth something. And, I think that that's a trap that can easily be fallen into with politics because there there is so much flattery. Yeah, it, at some point I I recognized that while I did want to make a difference, there was a part of me that just wanted to wanted to yeah, feel like I was worthy. And and so that was something that I I found when I lost that identity. Um, that needed to be established and figured out with God. I, I had to be given that true identity and that true worth before I could go out and do other other things like that. Yeah, having that worth or worthiness or idea of worth or worthiness come from the world in that way, it's just, as Stephen Covey put it, it's a funhouse mirror. But here's, you know, there's something else I thought. There's a quote that came to mind because, as you said, maybe this was, maybe you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. And, and in a sense, we always already are. And that's why this quote comes to mind from Bill Wilson. He says, in God's economy, nothing is wasted. Through failure, we learn a lesson in humility, which is probably needed, painful though it is. And so we fail forward. It's interesting. I, I, I like that, that you're reading that, because when I think about each of our backstories and, and many of the people that are in our, our circle within Latter-day Peace Studies and elsewhere, a lot of us came through this same political realm. We, we all did kind of the same thing. We had very strong um, political philo- philosophical beliefs, and we were very invested in that. And yet here we are, we ended up here. Not not to say that everyone does or that it, this is even the ideal place. I'm just saying it's interesting that we've all sort of come together by walking the same path. We're on a journey together. And some of us, you know, weren't really involved in the political process, or maybe we were and we did both, but we, we even wrote and lectured on political philosophy. We studied it. We taught it. I taught it at the university. You know, I taught political science and philosophy. And, and you know, so the, the question, I come back to this question again, that is the question, I call it question number one of, of the contemplative practice. Where am I? And so wherever you are, just remember in God's economy, nothing is wasted. You're right where you need to be right now. And then ask the question, because the next question is, you know, because where where am I? That's the starting place, right? But then the question is about connecting with God and about him showing you the way, right? About God showing you the way that he would have you go. And that's what Lindsay described from her experience. And that's what I've experienced every step of the way. 
it's a path that's it's a path paved with grace. There's just no other way to put it. Well, Christopher, something we talk about a lot, and maybe this is a, a good place to kind of bring things full circle, is within contemplation, we we spend a lot of time trying to reconnect with the very, very basic core nature of who we are. So we, we like to spend time in meditation, in nature, and really just trying to reconnect with our, our first, most important, true self as children of God. And uh, this Bible verse that Lindsay brought to mind in our pre-show discussion, I think is a, a great one to read and think about here, maybe contemplate on a little bit, from James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And he continues in verse 18, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And I love that finish because it really talks about how it has to start from within. You have to make peace or right relationship. You have to reconcile with yourself, with God. And it's at that moment that the fruits start to get born, right? The fruit of righteousness, which is sown in individual internal peace, is then kind of reaped externally or exoterically amongst the community and amongst your family and so forth. So, you know, as as a contemplative or an aspiring contemplative, I should say, this is something that I hope that my personal practice will always lead to, that this inner work of trying to be reconciled to my true nature as a child of God will bear fruit in my relationships with others. Well, Lindsay, we really appreciate you coming on, and, and perhaps you could give our listeners maybe a closing thought about what peace has meant for you and how they might be able to begin experiencing peace in their own lives and what effect that might have for them. One thing that has kind of been on my mind lately is just, I, I've always, I, I've married, I married a very peaceful person. He's always just been very peaceful and I have not been so peaceful and I've always kind of wondered where that came from and how he was able to, he, he easily can bear insults. He doesn't get offended by things easily. Uh, life for him is, goes so much more smoothly than it does for me because he's just able to see reality and see a bigger picture. And I've always kind of just wondered, like, how does he do that? And I've just admired him so much. And last year when I was making some memes for the Peace Studies page, I came across this quote by Maha Gosananda, and I hope I said that right. But um, he says that when you make a p- make peace with yourself, you make peace with the world. And... You know, I, when I read that, I recognized my husband in that, in that quote, and he's at peace with himself. He's not only at peace with himself, but he's at peace with God. And so the things that happen in his life and the things that don't go right, and when things get hard for him, he, he's able to deal with those things in such a graceful way because of, because of that inner peace that he's able to find. And it's something that I'm definitely not there yet, and I work on it every day. But I think that as we work for that inner peace, it's not going to make those injustices and the unkindness and all of the terrible things that happen in life just suddenly go away. But it does help us to be able to find some sort of peace through the things that we go through. And I think that that is a big part of how we become a peacemaker is by starting with finding the peace within ourselves and with God and then and then working out in those circles further and further and making those ripple effects. Lindsay, there was a, a moment where Christ described his peace. I need some of that peace. I'm so sorry. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Sorry, Riley. Go ahead. <laughs> You're feeling it, man. You're feeling wow. it. Come on. <laughs> um, Lindsay, there was a moment where Christ described the difference between his peace, his brand of peace, you could say, and the world's brand of peace. 
And he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And it, it just highlights again that when someone is able to go inside themselves and find the peace that comes from recognizing your divine nature, it's a peace that is completely different than the world would have us have. And we've, we've used this prayer of subtraction in the past, and maybe this might be a, a good place to close because it's inspired by your, your last words here. So I'm just going to go ahead and read this prayer of subtraction from John chapter 14, verse 27. Again, it's, it's Jesus speaking this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give. Peace I leave with you, my peace. Peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with. Peace I leave. Peace. I think that can take on so many different meanings, and whichever one of those lines is hitting for you at this moment, I just encourage you to dive in deep and find the peace that Christ offers for you. Lindsay, really appreciate you coming on the show today and offering your perspective and a little bit about your background and your transition into a life of peace. Thank you so much for being here. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Lindsay. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone.